Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that your word, it just looks like words on a page. Just English words on a page. But they are your written word intended to change our hearts. But I confess that in a world that's full of marketing campaigns, a world full of temptation to believe lies, Lord, your word recenters us on what is true. Your word recenters us upon the greatest news in all the world. That we are more broken than we could ever imagine, and yet in Jesus Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to dream at the exact same time. So would you open our hearts, we pray, to be changed by your word in the moments we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're back in the book of Acts. We were uh, here three weeks ago, and then um, thank you for praying for me and my family as we were away on vacation. It's so good to be back. And if you remember in the book of Acts, or for those of you who've never actually opened the Bible or read it or seen the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a book in the Bible that actually is, is really the framework for the entire New Testament. That is, that the book of Acts shows us the mission that Jesus had through his apostles to accomplish after he died, he rose again from the dead and he ascended to the Father. In, in Acts chapter 1, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 1 to 7, it talks about how God's apostles were his witnesses his church, Stephen and Philip, the deacons of the church, and other laymen, other people who were Christians, were his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And then beginning in Acts 8-12, through 12, it talks about how that went to Samaria. And then beginning in Acts chapter 13, it talks about how the gospel goes to the end of the world. It becomes a framework for us. In fact, if we didn't have the book of Acts, we would be swimming to figure out what order the books of the Bible were written in. But the book of Acts shows us the order because of Paul's missionary journeys so that we know that more than likely he wrote in his first missionary journey one book, the book of Galatians. We know that in the second missionary journey he wrote two books. Second missionary journey, two books. First and second Thessalonians. Hang with me. I'm not trying to geek out on you. I'm just trying to explain how it's a framework. The third missionary journey, how many books do you think Paul wrote? He wrote three books, first and second Corinthians and then Romans. And then he was put in prison and he wrote four books in prison. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we would have no framework for the order in which God, through Paul, communicated his word to his people. It's not just a framework for us though, but the book of Acts is also for us the foundation. It talks about when Jesus rose again from the dead, like, you do realize that we worship a God who is triune, of whom Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He was fully God and fully man. He rose again from the dead. And if you don't believe me, go find out in history how people who never bought the gospel knew it was true. It's a historical fact. And the book of Acts shows us the foundation of our faith and the resurrection and then how the apostles carried that out. It's also, lastly, it's a fountain for us, a framework, a foundation. It's a fountain. The book of Acts is the fountain of joy. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we'd have no idea how we were supposed to do church. But thankfully, Luke, Dr. Luke, writes it out, and he gives us a history of the early church throughout the book of Acts. 
So when you come to chapter 13, we read about a missionary journey that the Apostle Paul begins to take. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes to a place called Antioch where the gospel is preached. And then from Antioch, he sails to the ends of the earth, to the frontier, as it were. And I'm going to read all of chapter 13 because if you're like me, right, it's helpful to read large parts of the Bible. It's going to take me about six minutes to read all of it. It's a long chapter. So hang with me. Keep your eyes on the text. Listen to the story as I read it. And then in the few moments we have, we'll think together about it. This is Acts chapter 13. You can stay seated as I read it. This is the very word of God. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. But they had, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, this is Bar-Jesus, same person, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if any of you have word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Why do you suppose that I am? Or what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me is coming the sandals, one of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize nor understand him, the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. And they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. God, this is a long chapter. And we know that it was um, 
very late in the history of the church when we actually put chapter divisions. But the story is a story that's a whole story and a story that should be read all at once. So help us now as we think together about it to see how you intend to use it to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, listen, I know it's a long story. Some of us aren't used to reading, concentrating for that long. But you know what you are used to concentrating on? Are advertisements. There are no more blank spaces in the world. Advertisers know that if there's a blank space in your life, they will find some way somehow to fill that blank space up. Listen, advertisers know what it's like to put things in the blank spaces. Notice there is a, um, a bus stop. It's in a city in the Northeast that doesn't just advertise for milk, but it actually gives off the aroma of chocolate chip cookies. In fact, there are so many complaints by the people who are on public transportation. They ask the city to turn the smell off of the bus stop. Or some of you guys, you know, when you go to the mall, you go to the mall and, and you can't, well, or you go to the hospital and on the hospital examination table for the moms is what? It's an advertisement for Tylenol. They spend thousands, millions of dollars in the medical industry to help mothers know that, hey, Tylenol is exactly what your child needs. Or when you're in the mall, surely we can advertise for the lotto in the mall. Or... If you're headed home and you go down the elevator in the mall, there's an advertisement for how I met your mother on the back of the elevator walls. There are no more blank spaces in our lives these days. Or CBS advertises on real farm fresh eggs in the grocery store. Did you know this? There are no more blank spaces in the world. Or men, you know this. Women, you know this. Who travel in the airports. Where do you put your shoes, your laptops? You put them in the bins to go through the security line and certainly companies are going to fill those spaces. Or, if that's not enough, you get in the airplane to relax and actually read a book, enjoy it, but though there you go, on the trays is another, another advertisement. Or, okay, let's go get our bags. Surely this will make it better. You go and get your bags and, oh my gosh, what is that? It's not a ba- It's a giant sushi. Sushi restaurant in the airport's advertising for their sushi product. Listen, there are no more blank spaces in the world. Advertisers know how to market messages to you and you are riddled with them everywhere you look. You know what's funny about what advertisers know about the human psyche? Is that you're a perfect advertisement too. In fact, there are no more blank spaces in your own life. Every one of you And me advertises something to the world constantly. Everyone is sending out a clarion message and a clarion call. And it comes out in our crises. It comes out in our boredom. It comes out in our choice of entertainment. It comes out in the mundane just living of life together. Every single one of us become a marketing campaign or an advertisement. Here's the question this morning. What do you advertise? Moms and dads, when your children watch you from a distance, what do you advertise to them? I long, I long to get the new gadget that's going to help me get by my day. I long to constantly be online. And what do you, What's that advertised to your children? Or the thirst you have to have the right kind of clothing or the have the right house, sort of have the right job. Listen, you're constantly advertising something and it comes out in our crises and in our boredom and in the mundane living of life. 
what do you advertise? Jesus gave us the ad campaign that he wanted all of his people to live out. It was found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's the ad campaign he gives to his church. And in Acts chapter 13, he begins to show us how to do that through a man named Paul. And what we see in Paul's first missionary journey is why, is why we are to live out this advertising campaign. Where do you do it and how do you pull it off? Why, where, and how? And here's the point of the message, right? If you remember nothing else, get your pen out, write it in the blanks on the back of your bulletin. Acts chapter 13, Luke wrote to show Theophilus, the one who he wrote this book to, and every one of you, that we are to be backyard missionaries. That we are to be backyard missionaries. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I don't want to talk about being a missionary. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Why, do, why are we to be backyard missionaries? Where are we to be backyard missionaries? And how do we do it? That's what we're going to look at today. Okay? So lower your eyes to the text, and let's jump in. Why are we to be backyard missionaries? Notice, first of all, that we are to be backyard missionaries because just like Paul and Barnabas, they were commissioned. They were commissioned to be backyard missionaries. Look in verse 3. It says, Then after fasting and praying, they, the leaders of the church, laid hands on them and sent them off. And then verse 4, they were sent off by the Holy Spirit. You know, what's interesting about um, preachers and church planting in Tulsa is that here's the deal. Everybody in Tulsa, or many people in Tulsa, many people in Tulsa feel led by the Holy Spirit to just go start a church. And what's hard is that it's hard to know if that's really the Holy Spirit or last night's bean burrito. It's hard to know, is this really from God or not? And notice that Paul gives us very clear guidelines on what does it mean to be commissioned. And he says he's commissioned both by the institution of the church, but also by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The external call from other people and the internal call of the Holy Spirit go together. And this isn't just for Paul or Barnabas. This is also a commission for you and for me, isn't it? Because Jesus says in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we like to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus said that to the disciples. Like, that was what they were supposed to do. All I'm supposed to do is just enjoy my life. I don't want to talk about evangelism. I don't want to talk about that. It's uncomfortable. But, you know, what's interesting is that after it says you are to go and do that, it says what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. It's a representative command for the whole church. It wasn't just for those disciples listening to Jesus. It was for all of us. We have been commissioned. And you are commissioned through the preaching of God's word and through the internal power of the Holy Spirit to go and to be his missionaries. That's why we're called to do it, because he calls us to be his ambassadors to the ends of the earth. But let's talk Turkey here for a second. If you're here for the first time, this is gonna, I'm going to talk to Christians here for a second. So Christians, listen up. Many of you are scared to death of evangelism. You're scared of it. Like you're fearful. 
you work so hard to get to please your parents, to please your boss. You work so hard to get people to like you that finally when you become a Christian, it's like, yes, Jesus takes me for me. He loves me. He, does it, he sees all my warts. He loves me. Yes. And then you somehow tend to forget that though you have the affection of the Almighty God, what you really care about most is that person liking you the best, that friend not rejecting you. And so when you have the opportunity to, sh- to share the most important news in the world, we're just, we're just, we're just cowards. Maybe, it, maybe it's just me. And this is something I'm paid to do. But I feel that pressure, and I'm sure you do too. Listen, the principle in this text is that you cannot let fear be an excuse for disobedience. Because I know how scary it is to share the gospel. It is not easy. Because this world is not, it is hard to talk serious about the stories of the tragedies of your life and how you have hope amidst the crises of It's hard. But sometimes that's as easy as the gospel is. Evangelism is telling the story of God's good news in order to bring about a response of faith and repentance in somebody. That's all it is. It's telling your story of how God changed you and inviting them to believe in the gospel too. But you know, I, I think the fear drives a lot of us when it comes to evangelism. And so when you think about why should we evangelize because it's commanded of us, we give a lot of excuses. I'm scared. We throw down a lot of theological excuses. You know, if God's sovereign, he's going to save whoever he wants. I mean, for crying out loud, it says in verse 48 that all those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Well, let him appoint more. You know, William Carey, in um, 1750s, William Carey, who was the great founder of the Baptist Missionary Movement, William Carey went before the Baptist Missionary Association, and he said, men, I feel called to go and to give my life for the sake of the gospel. And you know what John Ryland, a man who was sitting in this committee, said to William Carey? He said, son, sit down. If God is going to save people, he's going to very well do it by himself. He doesn't need you. And sometimes those of us who grow up in a church that preaches a high view of the sovereignty of God, we love to use theology as an excuse. And we love to be able to say, well, God's sovereign. I'll have a chance next time. God's sovereign. He'll do the work. Do you know how God executes his sovereign care for people's hearts? Through us! Through you and through me. And if we're really honest about evangelism, fear is part of it. There's no doubt about it. But you know what I think is probably even deeper in our hearts? Why we don't evangelize? It's because we just think we're better than other people. We just think we're smarter than they are. And we have a superiority complex that says, God has called me by grace alone. And I just want to keep that to myself because I somehow you begin to think you deserved it. Listen, as one person has said, evangelism is just one fed beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. There's an apartment complex in Tulsa called the Yale Apartment Complex that the Tulsa Mental Health Association built from the ground up or redid 
And do you know who they used to staff the Yale apartments? They used people, former people who had had mental health issues to staff and run that apartment complex because they know that as they reach out to people in this community who have suffered from mental health issues, the best people to minister to people with mental health are people who formerly had mental health issues. Or John 3.16, the ministry in North Tulsa, John 3.16 for homeless men or homeless women. You go visit John 3.16. Who's at the front desk waiting to greet you? It's a former homeless man or a woman who knows what it's like to be a fed beggar who just wants to show other people where to find bread. Or you think about Celebrate Recovery, right? John Baker, the the founder of Celebrate Recovery, was an alcoholic who knew, who knew the very first principle of Celebrate Recovery was to realize that I am not God and that I need help. And then the last principle was to yield myself to God, right? All the principles spell out recovery, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-I. The last one is yield myself to God to be able to share the good news that God restores broken people. We're just fed beggars trying to show other people where to find bread. There, in the history of the church, there are a, a group of saints called the, the, the 14 Holy Saints. They are 14 men who were cured of the bubonic plague. And they were cured of the bubonic plague and they went back into the streets of London to help cure others who had the plague. And they gave their lives to it and they were immortalized in poetry. So when the opera Hansel and Gretel, which is a huge opera, took the fairy tale and made it into a big show, when the opera was put together, um, Engelbert Humperdinck, who wrote it, has this poem that goes like this. When at night I go to sleep, 14, 14 angels watch do keep. Two are my head guarding, two my feet are guiding, two upon my right hand, two upon my left hand, two who warmly cover, two who o'er me hover, two to whom is given to guide my uh, steps to heaven. Are you like somebody who's been cured of the plague and you go back to help other people? We're just fed beggars showing other people where to find bread. Are you scared? of telling other people about Jesus. Listen, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you at all. The Lord knows. He knows how we've been so manipulated and abused by past church experiences of feeling horrible and trying to tell everybody about Jesus because somehow that gets God to like us more. He cannot like you anymore. He loves you with an everlasting love. He cares for you. He wants to free you up of that. But he wants you to experience the joy that you so ardently long for. And do you know how you get that joy? Do you know how you live out the first question of the Westminster Confession? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever? You don't make excuses for disobedience. And you obey Him even when it's hard. Now, Before, before I move on, Oz Guinness wrote um, a, a book called The Dust of Death in the 70s, and he says that the strident intolerance of much guilt-driven evangelism covers an intellectual insecurity in all of us. That is, that some people just pour on the heat. You've got to evangelize. 
You got to show me the noses. You got to show me who you're talking to about Jesus. They pour on, and it, and Oz says this kind of covers up an intellectual insecurity that people have. In these circles, much that is taught has to be unlearned in the wider school of life, and it's not surprising that universities are littered with dropouts from the evangelical church. Their non-rational, subjective faith is cruelly punctured by varsity-level questions of life, and many manage to survive only by resorting to a kind of schizophrenic faith, which they hold to be true religiously, but not intellectually, historically, or scientifically. So what I'm telling you to guard against, or I'm trying to bring to light, is on the one hand, we are fearful of evangelizing. And many of us are fearful because we have a, a kind of subtle superiority complex. But on the other hand, listen, we should do it. And how to find that right strike is very important. And this is where the text gets very interesting. Where are you to evangelize? Notice this in Acts is the part where Paul leaves a place called Antioch, which was the Gentile center of mission. It was at Antioch in chapter 11 that Christians were first called Christians. And Paul then takes off with Barnabas and John Mark to share the good news. And Paul is going to Gentiles, isn't he? He's going to Gentiles. But do you notice the first place Paul goes when he lands? Look what the text says. Lower your eyes and see. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. I thought Paul was going to the Gentiles. Why does Paul go to the synagogue? Because he's trying to show you and me that you evangelize right where you are where you have natural connections. Paul had spent his entire life as a Jew. Philippians chapter 3 tells us he was spotless as to the law. And so where does he start his own event? He's the best apologist besides Jesus himself ever to live. And where does Paul, he needs a warm-up. He goes to people who he knows. He goes to the Jews. Where are you to do this? You are to be backyard missionaries. That means not only are you to be a missionary, but you're to do it in your backyard. Paul knows that the greatest threat to the proclamation of the righteousness of God is man's own righteousness, just like Mike said earlier before the confession of sin. That man's righteousness, our fierce struggle to be right and good and holy, that's the greatest obstacle to understanding the righteousness of God, which is given to us irrespective, sometimes in spite of our best deeds, which are still shot through with sin. God gives us his righteousness as a free gift. And Paul knows that if he's going to get that message across to the Gentiles, he's got to first start with the Jews. Because the religious people are the hardest people to evangelize because they think they got it figured out. Paul starts in his backyard. He starts in synagogues. And if you read on through Acts, he always starts that way. Acts chapter 17, we think about Mars Hill. Where did he begin? He began at the synagogue at the very first verse in the book of, uh, chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Because he starts right where he is. So listen to me. You're always advertising. Where do you have natural connections? You're scared of evangelism. 
But where do you have relationships teed up? Where is the, if you, if you want to use this metaphor, where is the low-hanging fruit, so to speak? The relationships you already have, the friendships that are in crisis right now who are looking to you as a mentor in their life. Friends, these are wonderful opportunities to start right where you are. I'm not asking you to go across the street and knock on doors and give a track out. But what Paul says is you are to evangelize right where you are. And then you work out from there. Are you with me? We are to be backyard missionaries. You're going to be a backyard advertiser no matter what. You, you get the best news in all the world that God loves sinners like you and he's coming to restore a broken world. Be a backyard missionary and start right where you are. How do you do that? Well, we are to be backyard missionaries. Now, I know missionaries get a bad rap. Missionaries get a bad rap. And that's why we try to introduce you to as many people that have given their life to missions that are as cool and intelligent and intellectual and awesome. In fact, I think missionaries are smarter than the rest of us because they learn a completely different culture. And they learn thousands of different ways to communicate the gospel. That's what being a missionary is. A missionary is not like wearing a jumper, covering your head, and go moving out to some forest village somewhere. A missionary is somebody who knows how to communicate the gospel in a thousand different ways to different cultures, in ways that they understand and, and that they get. And here Paul takes two very different people and he shows us what it means to be a missionary. Here's Elymas, a magician, who has no idea about the Jewish faith, even though he understands a little bit from the Jewish proconsul. And he has a little bit of awareness of what it means to be Jewish because he was a Jewish false prophet. And then you have on the other side these Jews who are fiercely religious and Paul shares the gospel in very different ways because he's a great missionary. How does he do it? Let's look at these two case studies. Elymas the magician, if you look at verses 6 through 12, this is a man who is pagan to the core. He's a false prophet. He's inciting everybody against the apostle Paul. He does not believe in Jesus. He does not really even believe in the one true God. He's a false Jewish prophet. He's using magic to win people over. And so how does Paul communicate the gospel to him? He matches power with power. In other words, Paul starts not at scripture like he does in just a moment as I'll show you with the Jews, but he's got to pull even further back. Paul starts at creation itself. And Paul demonstrates that the Lord of all creation is powerful enough to trump this man's magic spells in order to help him see that the God he's talking about is legit. He matches power with power, and he pulls all the way back to talk about creation in order for this man to understand who it is that upholds all things by the word of his power. This man is blinded, a mist falls over him, and he's... So, Paul becomes a magician to the magician. He outspells the speller. And he gets in that way. He communicates the gospel to him. But then if you flip the page in verses 13 all the way down through verse 42, Paul, notice, he's a great missionary. He approaches the gospel in a completely different way. 
He doesn't start with creation because he's got a lot of common ground with these folks. He starts with Scripture. And for seven verses, he talks about how Scripture is fulfilled through the story of God's people, which climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. And then he turns the tables on him and he says, well, look, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 and Habakkuk 1 and later Isaiah 49. All of these passages that you know so well, who are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. And he uses the Old Testament to preach the gospel to those who had the Old Testament memorized. Isn't that brilliant? Listen, Paul does not use one method of evangelism. And that's why a lot of us are afraid to evangelize. Because we feel like we've, we got, you just have to have one way. Whether it's evangelism explosion, which is a great way that teaches you the Roman road. Or it's by asking other questions. You know, listen, we've got to be a people who understand God and sin and Jesus and faith and repentance so well that you can communicate the gospel in a thousand different ways. If you're like me, some of us grew up where you learned one way to evangelize and you kind of have it memorized. It's kind of like when I was in, um, I was talking to, to gay men earlier. It's kind of like when I was an undergrad at A&M, I was a biomedical science major. And we learned things like this, where you learn like these really complicated biomedical pathways. And we all thought like these pathways were cool and we had, you know, these, these images of biomedical pathways. We wanted to be able to communicate how the body worked. Right? So we memorized like, the internal workings of the body because we all wanted to be physicians. And the problem was that actually when you see a human being in front of you, I don't know how to help them anymore because all I have memorized are biomedical pathways. And for some of us, the gospel is like that. Like you've got like three verses memorized and you become so shell-shocked. Like I've got to get these three verses in because I've got to, listen, you tell your story. They are human beings who have bumps on their bodies and a fever. You're going to be, you're going to draw from what you've learned in the Bible, what you learned at Trinity and elsewhere, but you've got to communicate to them because they're human beings. People want to be known. And the best way you can evangelize is by being friends to people. And part of being a friend to people means that you share the most important thing in your life with them. Namely, that you have been saved as a sinner who's in desperate need of Christ's unrighteousness. And I'm going to share a very simple way to share the gospel. On Thursdays, on this Thursday, I met a man who's, a, who's a, he's an... He's the only Oklahoma anarchist that I know. And we're meeting together on Thursday to talk about the gospel. And it's a, it's a fascinating conversation because we have totally different worldviews. We're having conversations together. I'm telling him my story and I'm helping him understand what's wrong with the world and how I believe it gets fixed. And he's telling me what's wrong with the world and how he believes it gets fixed. And we're thinking together and we're friends and we're moving together. And it's a great conversation. We're, you know, am I evangelizing to him? Yes. And in some ways, he's evangelizing to me. It's a wonderful conversation to have. Do you have those kind of conversations? It doesn't have to be with somebody who's you know, an anarchist. It just needs to be with somebody who is a human being who you love and who you know. Here's one very easy way to think about the outline of the gospel. Why? How 
Where, who, what do I do? A little rhyme. Why, how, where, who, what do I do? For example, sometimes I'm talking to people, they're sharing me about what they do in life. I'll say, why, why do you do that? Why do you do that? They'll tell me why they do it. It's great. Well, how is that working for you? Why? How? Well, where is that going to get you? And in that question, sometimes it becomes talking about who can get you there. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. Why? How? Where? Who? And then what do you do about it? And I don't say, you know, sign this card and date it on this day. I say, let's keep talking together. Let's be friends. Let's keep talking and thinking about it together. Meet me at Bricktown. We'll, we'll enjoy company together there and we'll think about it. Why, how, where, who, what do I do? That actually helps me a lot in framing conversations with people. Or the four most important questions you could ever ask are who are you, where are you, what's wrong with this world, and how does it get fixed? It's another easy way to talk about the, con- the gospel. Now notice Paul quoted the Old Testament to Elymas. He quoted Micah, the prophet, but he didn't say, I quote Micah, the prophet. He just did it. It's the same way in your ability to communicate to people who did not grow up in the church, of which there are thousands in Owasso. Thousands of people who, more than 85% of this town goes to church less than once a month. Most people don't know the Bible. They don't. And so for us to start using the Bible verses on people, it just sometimes just doesn't connect. But questions often do. Why, how, where, who, what do I do? Who are you, where are you, what's wrong with the world, and how does it get fixed? Those are the questions for us. All right, in closing, listen. Every one of you are advertisers. You all are marketing a product. What are you communicating? There are no more blank spaces in the world. We are all communicating something. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we had the perfect, perfect advertisement for truth in the person and work of Jesus who came to earth through the incarnation, through the cradle, and then lived a perfect life for you and me that we might be able finally to be made right with God because we were disenfranchised from him. We were cut off from him because of our sin and our sinfulness. And from the cradle, he went to the cross and he died for our sins so that sinners like me might actually have hope in this world. And he didn't just die on that cross, but he rose again in history on the third day. And he ascended to the Father's right hand, where from cradle to cross, now crowned in glory, he is at the Father's right hand. And you know what he's saying right now? He's saying, I love Mary Alice. I love Holly, I love Amber, I love JJ, I love Ruth. He's talking to his father about how great you are because he loves you, he accepts you. He is your sovereign king who loves you more than you can imagine. And we are just fed beggars trying to show other people where to find bread. Will you walk with me in obedience to that calling through a myriad of different ways? to communicate and invite and to help people see the greatest news of all the world, that Jesus could possibly love somebody like you and like me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you hold us back from fear? And would you help us 
in a genuine, natural way to tell the stories of how you've changed us. Lord, give us more creativity, not less. We don't need colorful tracks. We need the ability to know the gospel so well that we can talk about it with people who come from such a wide variety of backgrounds. And we need your help to do it because we're scared and we don't like to be rejected. But help us to find hope in the one who is a lover of our soul who loves us so much he would never reject us. And we are his. And he is ours. Jesus, thank you for being the ultimate backyard missionary. Empower us to be the same, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.